Coming up on Tech Nation, draw me a picture. That's the ticket to success in today's world, and everyone can do it. Today I speak with Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy. He's back with Draw to Win. Then on Tech Nation Health, a new model for addressing genetically driven diseases which affect a small number of patients. Find the scientists and build companies around them. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft reviews new technologies to determine the health status of our hearts. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Often attributed to the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan is the quote, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Turns out in this day and age, the battle is over facts, which is an easy way to get your opinion verified, validated, spread, and solidified. It doesn't matter who's being accused of creating fake news, which in itself is creating fake news. The existence of any untruths does the damage. Invent facts, sway opinion, affect the actions of unwitting individuals. To be clear, this is not just an American issue. French President Emmanuel Macron spoke of it during his campaign, promising to ban the deliberate spread of misinformation. You see, Macron was the target of misinformation. He had to fend off attacks, accusing him of having a secret Caribbean bank account. And like Hillary Clinton, his campaign's email and other documents were hacked and then released just days before the election. The group which hacked him was linked directly to the Russian government, and Macron is out to stop it. But how? How do you do that without compromising freedom of speech? The very idea that creating a law which outlaws misinformation is immediately on thin ice. For who is to decide what the truth is? If you believe something with all your heart and mind and soul, is it true? Well, it's true for you. And even if you assemble a committee of good and true citizens, how can they know? Take the idea of a single truth, such as whether or not climate disruption has been significantly accelerated by human behavior. And despite all the scientific proof, any number of smart people refuse to believe it. Once the committee or agency or whatever is given the authority, the power to decide what is and is not misinformation, the problem is created once again. And even should the committee be stacked with well-meaning people, consensus is not truth. But on simple items, there could be at least some censure. Take, for example, how many people were in attendance at the 2016 presidential inauguration versus in 2012 or 2008, or about tweeting facts which can easily be disproven. Perhaps simple corrections could have an impact on the whole. But be clear, there's more to it than that. You see, interfering in elections is fast becoming a parlor game. 
In 2007, some 10 years ago, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks released damaging documents directly affecting the outcome of the presidential election in Kenya. The point here is not whether the information was true or it was misinformation, but rather that there is now a serial quality to the act of interfering with significant elections. In the case of WikiLeaks, this is in countries not their own. It is a powerful reward to sway the outcome of any presidential election, and it appeals to those who seek to upend authority for its own sake. By the time you get to any national election, all candidates are indeed powerful. So no matter the result, the ability to jumble the candidates will have appeal to a number of individuals, and that's all it takes. And if individuals can upend elections, so can competitor countries. Whether it's a few or an entire nation, there will always be some who believe that chaos in the world is a great outcome. How we deal with this, or don't, will no doubt affect our individual and collective futures. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy. Drawing pictures in the world of information overload is more essential than ever to communicate effectively. Then on Tech Nation Health, a new model for tackling diseases which affect a small number of patients. Find the scientists wherever they are and build small companies around them. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us new ways to determine the health of our hearts. You may well know Dan Rome from his books on visualization, including the very first one, The Back of the Napkin, to his latest, Draw to Win. He's here today to talk about rethinking how we think. Dan, welcome back to Tech Nation. Ira, thanks so much for having me back. Oh, I'm just delighted. And you opened your latest book with a quote from Leonardo da Vinci. I'm real highbrow on me here. From the dawning of the day, the air is filled with countless images, which acts as a magnet. Is that how you feel? Oh, my gosh. And you're reminding me, I haven't thought about that quote since I wrote the book. And I sought it out intentionally. Number one, I wanted a quote from Leonardo. Because if you think about really good visual thinkers, he's got to be among those on the very top of the stack. And I love this idea that you open your eyes in the morning and there is the world just waiting for you to look at and see what you can see. And it's so interesting to me because Leonardo, he had no choice but to hand draw his images. He seemed to do just fine. He did great. You're referring, of course, to his various notebooks that are full of, let's think of the things that Leonardo invented, right? So he had the first helicopter drawn on the margins of one of his notebooks, the first parachute, all of these different kinds of battlements, ornithopters, 
all of this stuff. Ornithopters. Ornithopters, flapping wing machines. Oh, that's right. That's That's right, because he was thinking that we were going to fly. He has all of these sketches of birds in flight, thinking that maybe, because flight, which is one of the things I also love about Leonardo, how many of these things relate to getting into the air? He thought we'd be able to fly like birds. That didn't quite work out. But a funny thing about the parachute that he sketched out 500 years ago, interestingly enough, uh, maybe five or six years ago, a Swiss engineer went in and looked at Leonardo's sketch in the margins of one of his notebooks and built the parachute as Leonardo had designed it and was taken up to, you know, 8,000 feet or something and jumped out of a plane using Leonardo's parachute and lived. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Leonardo and, was pretty sharp. And, <laughs> and he had a backup shoot that wasn't designed oh, by Leonardo it. da Vinci, but and he made it. He would be joining Leonardo <laughs> soon, soon, yeah. Well, what's so fascinating to me is that when you say it that way, how his mind worked had to be visual. It had to have all of these elements that he literally saw things. It must be so. And there's so many other pieces that fit into this, because aside from all the things that Leonardo invented, so many of which he drew first, let's not forget that this is the same mind that also painted the Mona Lisa, arguably the most famous painting in the world. The same mind did all that. And one other thing I'd add in is that for a long time, for hundreds of years, people tried to decipher his notebooks and they could not figure out his writing. And people thought that Leonardo, even scholars, thought that Leonardo da Vinci was writing in some kind of a code until someone had the brilliant idea of simply holding it up to a mirror. Leonardo da Vinci wrote backwards. In large part, it's assumed because he was left-handed, which is also very interesting because there's a high correlation of people who are left-handed and those who tend to be more visual or spatial in their thinking. And here again, to your point, it's exactly right. One of the most visual minds of all time, people thought he couldn't write. He was writing backwards because he was writing with his left hand, which then leads us into a whole conversation of what does it mean to be dyslexic, because there's a lot of overlap, and the whole upside of the trouble for many people of learning to read dyslexia of that particular type can go back to how we actually perceive the world. And people who tend to be more of the spatial mind sometimes struggle to recognize the difference between letters that are facing right and left or up and down because they all look the same. And yet those people who have that kind of dyslexia have a measurably better peripheral vision than the rest of us. So their ability to focus on a little tiny spot right in front of us and discern it in great detail may not be as good, but the ability to see the bigger picture is far better than the rest of us. And it's really cool. I know I go on, but I love this. If you think about some of the great I don't know, great, famous dyslexics. You think about, here we are in San Francisco, Charles Schwab, who who created Schwab Investments. So dyslexic that he couldn't get through the classics at Stanford Business School. So he had a professor who said, you're so smart, we're going to get you through the school. And she gave him all the classics that he had to read in cartoon form. I mean, amazing. (laughs) And you think about Richard Branson, dyslexic. You think about so many people. My gosh. And that has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has to do with your perception of the world and your perception frequently goes to what's going on in your brain. I think what's so important here, why I started here, is that you say, you know, don't look at your pencil in your hand as about drawing. It all starts in your brain. I think that's the most important part here as a seed 
to going forward? Oh, my gosh. That is the number one mantra when I'm talking to people about visual thinking that I have to convey over and over, especially with business people, is to make, as you just did, the very clear distinction. Drawing, in the way that we're interested in it, is not an artistic process. It's a thinking process. Someone told me the other day, I wish I could take credit for this quote because it's so brilliant. We live in a very, very uncertain world right now. The antidote to uncertainty is not certainty because we simply can't be certain. The antidote to uncertainty is clarity. What we really want to do is be clear. And to your point, taking that pen, putting it on a piece of paper and drawing out what we see in our mind's eye, really simply a square, a circle, an arrow, a triangle, it is so clear. And that's what I really love about drawing, the clear thinking side of it. I don't care if your drawing looks beautiful. Nobody does. What we care about is are you able to clarify what you saw in your mind so that I can see it too? That completely changes my perspective of what's going on with drawing. Now, a whole lot of people may be saying, you're kidding. You didn't figure that out. It's like, no, I didn't. But I also think about people who sit there in your workshops or you know, just stare you right down saying, look, I know I can't draw. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's a really great question because probably two-thirds of the people that I have are business people or leaders in organizations, nonprofits or, or startups or what have you. And two-thirds of them, they're all very smart. And two-thirds of these very smart people say, Dan, I, I can't do this. I can't be a visual thinker because I can't draw. And so what I say to them is exactly what you and I just talked about. I'm not interested in your artistic ability. We are interested in your clear thinking ability. And by the way, I will show you in two minutes how you can draw anything with just seven very, very simple shapes. If you can draw a dot, which then becomes a line, which then becomes a square, drop one of the sides and you've now got a triangle, round the whole thing out, you've got a circle, draw a little blob, and then if you can draw an arrow that connects all of those pieces, you can draw anything. Though I think of this now as the visual alphabet, those very simple elemental shapes. And if I could say one more thing about it, I've become quite fascinated as I've been trying to understand why these simple shapes, a square, a circle, a triangle, convey so much meaning. It turns out, not surprisingly, I'm not the only one who ever wondered about that. Carl Jung spent a lot of time trying to figure out, of course, in symbols and human consciousness and what do we have in common, he seemed to think that these very basic shapes convey a lot of really, really deep human significance, that a square tends to represent something that is known and very stable. Nobody's afraid of a square. It's not going anywhere. It's not rolling away. You can define it. You can polish it and make it perfect. A square feels like a safe place to be. I'm in the square. I'm at home. A triangle is very different. A triangle, why do we think the Greeks might have said it represents delta or change? There's something up about a triangle. It's not square like a square was. And then, my gosh, you take a circle. What does that represent? Well, life or the singularity or something at the center. These shapes that we now draw, you add them together. If you need to draw a horse, well, you combine a couple of circles, a box, a triangle. Great. There's so much richness in just this very simple little visual alphabet. Obviously, I get excited about it. I can teach anybody, any one of these scary business people to draw those seven shapes in about two minutes, and then we're off to the races. Because they can go. draw a square for sure. 
Absolutely they can. Yeah. And I started out, I say, let's just draw a circle. Can everybody draw a circle? Yeah. Does anyone need any help? No. See, you're already visual. It works. <laughs> it's good. It works. It works. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy. You may well know him from his books on visualization, including the very first one, The Back of the Napkin. He's here today to talk about rethinking how we think and his latest book, Draw to Win, a crash course on how to lead, sell, and innovate with your visual mind. Well, the Napkin Academy, it was just getting going the last time I was talking to you. Tell us about the Napkin Academy and how it's blossomed. Technology has really made a big, big change in what you're able to do. Oh, my gosh. Well, and thank you for asking because the Napkin Academy has been a source of real fun for me. And you're right. I started it, I think, eight years ago now, and I was inspired by Salman Khan and the Khan Academy. And I thought if Salman Khan can teach people how to do algebra, doing simple little YouTube videos, which he could, then I thought, why couldn't I try the same style and teach people to be more visual by drawing simple little YouTube videos as well? I did so many of them that I put them together in this thing called napkinacademy.com. And over the last many years, I think altogether we've had, I don't know, seven or 8,000 people who are subscribers. I did do a count recently from 43 different countries around the world who have come in. It is a site that you have to pay for. There's a lot of free videos, but it's a small fee. And it's been fabulous for me because I now have the feedback from all of these thousands of different people every month saying, this is what I'm working on visually. And it keeps me honest too, because I know that every month I have to deliver a new lesson to this group. So it keeps me on my toes too. Do they get to interact with each other as well? Yes. So uh, when you are a card-carrying, subscribing member of the Napkin Academy. When you get your napkin. When you do get your napkin. <laughs> everything that you want to share, it goes into our forums, and they're, they're password protected. You have to be a member to get in. But once you're in, you can view anybody else's work. And we have some very fun sessions where we deconstruct each other's visual thinking. And what's a joy for me as the host, like you are on this radio show, I get to then be the host and say, oh, Mary, why don't you share us your picture? And then we've got a shared whiteboard so we can actually draw live. And it's been fabulous because on Napkin Academy, using this tool, I've now been able to do something that I call draw together, where it's kind of like a visual, I don't know, it's like a visual game show where I will pick a famous visual thinker. And I've been honored to have people like Simon Sinek join me and Dan Pink join me. Catherine Madden, who's a crazy good uh, visual communicator. And what we do is we actually share the whiteboard and we draw together. What I do is I go through this person's latest book, like in the case of Simon Sinek, we were talking about Start With Why. And uh, I pick three quotes from their book and they don't know what I'm going to throw at them. And then we go live and I tell them, you know, which one of these quotes do you want to take? They pick one. I reveal what the quote is and then we have to draw it. And the way the rules go is... You can only draw three lines, and then you have to turn over the pen. Ooh. So we can talk. You can talk when you're drawing, but you hand over the pen, and now we are literally drawing it together. And it's so much fun. You know, it's so funny because these are all new techniques, new approaches that are going in parallel with 
the big data explosion, the big analytics explosion, but it has nothing to do with technology in a real sense. It has to do with our ability to actually put these things together, which are empowered now by technology. Well, and this being TechNation, I was thinking it would be lovely to talk with you a little bit about the word you just mentioned, data. I read recently the statistics, and IBM, in their Global Planet report last year, published this information that they estimate 90% of all of the data that is in the world today was generated in the last two years alone. 90% of all the recorded data in the world today was generated in the last two years, according to IBM. Then I followed up with, I happen to have these statistics right on the top of my mind. Cisco published a report estimating that something like 95% of all information conveyed through the internet is visual information. Put those two together, massive amount of data out there, massive amount of visual information. Why? Because data all by itself doesn't mean a lot to us, but when we can put it together into a picture and see how all those data points line up and what they illuminate, all of a sudden our mind gets happy. And one thing I would love to talk with you a little bit as we go on in this is you've mentioned it already. We have data that leads to data visualization. And that's kind of old hat at this point. Back oh, my to goodness, is it? The good Dr. Tufty starts 20 years ago thinking about data visualization and other, oh, yeah. other leaders. And then we started to have kind of uh, information visualization coming out probably in the last 10 or 12 years with companies like Tableau and other people that make sophisticated. It's not just data analytics now. The way I like to break it down is... Data visualization, in my mind, typically allows you to take maybe maybe two or three dimensions of data and map them onto each other and say, okay, these numbers plus these numbers give me this picture. Interesting. I think that information visualization doubles or triples that to where you can actually take seven or eight different dimensions of data and map them together into a much more sophisticated kind of a graphic. Maybe it includes time. Maybe it includes manipulable uh, trends. You can actually move through it backwards and forwards and add additional data. So now I would call that information visualization. And Moira, you know where we're about to go? Where? Knowledge visualization. Oh, there you go. We've got data visualization. We're good now at better at information visualization. Let's be fair. Data is interesting, but I don't really want the data. I want the information that comes from the data. But even the information isn't that interesting because what I really want is the knowledge that comes from the information. Imagine if we had something called knowledge visualization. What would that even look like? I don't know, but I want to know. <laughs> I want to know, too. And I think we're chipping away. I say we because myself and some friends and colleagues who are all visual people or data people or technology people are chipping away at this. And what we've done... And this is fun to be able to share with you a little bit. One of the things that was really great in going back and writing this new book, Draw to Win, 10 years after having written The Back of the Napkin, was to go back into the latest science around human visual cognition. So many new insights. And find, number one, this is really cool. We now pretty much know that vision, human vision, is a predictable process. What I mean by that is, if you think about vision, the biochemical, neurological, physiological system that's going on in our head, converting light into meaning, it's a system. And just like the way our heart pumps blood or the way that we walk, for all people, that system works in essentially the same way. We all walk. You know, we have our own little 
Someone has their own little hitch in their get-along kind of walk, but for the most part, we all walk the same way. Vision is the same for all of us, and the beauty of it is when you understand what our visual engine, our mind's eye, our visual neocortex, our retinas are trying to do with the vast amount of information in front of us, they're trying to force it through a series of filters and lenses to draw meaning out, and they're doing it in a very specific way, and we now know what that way is, which means if there's something I want to explain to you, I know if I could do it visually, I know exactly which pictures your visual mind is hoping to get next, which means that I can explain anything by creating these very simple pictures in this particular sequence, and you and I are going to understand it almost exactly the same way. And I think that is where knowledge visualization is going to come from. I've always told my students, for instance, that information is data in context. And yes. so data could sit there, oh, it's meaningless, and all of a sudden really important, and then all of it goes back to meaningless. You know? And so there it is. I'm really looking forward to information going to knowledge. All right, what's that leap? And we don't quite know it yet, but I can see people pushing on it. Yeah. And it is a very important thing today that we be able to take all this complexity around us and be able to reduce it to pictures. People understand pictures. They're ready to understand pictures. How many times have I sat in a meeting and somebody brought out a three-inch report with a one-page executive summary? They didn't even get the executive summary. What does it mean? If you can draw a picture, it makes all the difference in the world. To me, it's an essential skill today to get work. Oh, it is. In fact, I would push it even a little bit further. And this is actually something that uh, I talk about in the book, Draw to Win. I believe that the conversation today, the bigger conversation, the global conversation, is visual. And if you want a business person to be in that conversation, you have to be visual too. Now, there are people who say, oh my goodness, this is terrible. This is a loss of verbal literacy. I do not agree. I think on the contrary, what's happening is there have only ever been a limited number of people who were really, truly effective verbal communicators anyway, and it was a very exclusive group, and it tended sometimes to exclude people who might not have been as verbal. I find that visual thinking is a much faster way for people to be able to actually understand complex concepts and then participate. I find it a much more democratic way of sharing information because when you draw a picture and there's something that is not understood or factually wrong, it's immediately obvious, which is not true when you're t just uh, talking about something. Words are very, very easy to misconstruct or to intentionally try to skew and to make a point. And they pass right by. What did you say? Oh, I didn't say that, or I did say I, that. I never said that. I meant this or not that. The picture is the picture is the picture. The picture speaks the truth. And I often say to people, when, when, I, when I have a lot of businesses that come to me and ask for consulting around, you know, a really complicated initiative or a strategy or a new product that, that everybody inside the organization really needs to get on, literally on the same page about, um, and I will often say to them, be careful what you wish for. I'm delighted to work with you to go down the visual path. But if there is something kind of hidden away in your business that is politically untouchable, let's not even draw the pictures because it's going to come to the surface. The truth will, the truth will come out when you start to draw it. 
And if there's something in the truth that you want to avoid, let's not even engage. Let's not even draw the picture at all. I think it's fascinating, the power of the image, to be able to get us towards you and I seeing the same thing. And when that happens, wow, do the lights go on. Dan Rome is the founder of the Napkin Academy and author of Draw to Win. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, a new model for going after genetically driven diseases, which affect a small number of patients. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us how to know the health status of our hearts. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy and author of such books as The Back of the Napkin and Draw to Win. The last time you were here, I remember you were working with a person, and I want to say it was a doctor, who and the two of you uh, were working on what does healthcare look like in the United States and the insurance companies and who's getting medical care and who are the people, and you were very exciting, excited, although I have to say it was like over 40 slides, and you were, you were, you were coming down to finally finalizing it. I was thinking that at the time, this was huge in the news. Everybody was arguing about it. Everyone had a different perspective. Everybody was trying to make different points. There were lots of people in there. You were cutting into their food chain if you did what the guy next door said to do. And so it was It was just pre-Obamacare. Obamacare was about to come on. What happened to that? Okay. Well, Myra, incredible memory. Dr. Tony Jones, who remains a oh, business Tony colleague Jones, yeah. and friend of mine, you're right. It was almost 10 years ago uh, because I believe it was House Resolution 3962 passed in October of 2009. The fact that I remember that tells you the power of pictures. I don't have that good a memory, but I can remember that because I drew a picture with Tony. You're right. 46 pictures. House Resolution 3962 was the first piece of legislation passed under 
the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. We, like you, we became very concerned because as healthcare reform, which I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know if we need to reform the system. I don't know enough about it. But I certainly know that it caused a lot of consternation across the country, both pro and con. And if you were to look at our political situation today, I think you could legitimately draw a lot of the origins of the really nasty stuff that goes on in our bipartisanship to trying to bring about health care reform. A lot of it actually goes back to that moment, really divisive moment. What Tony and I became concerned about was as the nation was dividing itself around health care reform, it became very clear to us listening to all the different news services that nobody actually knew what they were talking about. Nobody had really read the law. And nobody had said at a systems level, here's what healthcare reform is about. So we decided, to your point, let's draw some pictures to explain it to ourselves. We did it just out of personal interest. We ended up drawing pictures that clarified pretty well. Very simple pictures. Stick figures, smiley faces. I remember just a emojis. few of them just here and there. A few. Yeah. And we got it. We actually kind of cracked the code. And I would tell you that it's been 10 years. A lot of water has passed under that bridge. We're in a completely new administration, political climate, and the question still remains. Two questions. Whatever happened to the Affordable Care Act and what do we have now? Is it better or worse? Nobody can really answer that. So Tony and I, just a couple of months ago, dusted off the old drawings and said, let's go back and look at what we have now. And I will share with you, we're almost done. One truth remains unchanged which is, I think, when it comes to health care, why drawing the pictures was so important, because it's something I don't think most Americans realize. Health care in the United States is a business. It's not a right. It's a business. That makes us pretty unique among most developed economies. What that means is health care, keeping us well, is a profit-driven business. And there's some really good stuff that comes out of that. A lot of innovation, highest quality care in the world in certain ways, incredible things. There's also a downside. Who can pay for it? And what we were able to realize was when you understand that it's a business, healthcare is a funky business because there's only so much money available. And if you look at where we are now, the money is shifting. And I would make one more analogy that only became clear to us when we tried to draw the pictures and now reflecting on it a decade later. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, in theory, could have worked. It, but you have to imagine it, and this came out of us drawing it. It was like a very fine-tuned Swiss watch composed of many, many pieces that had to work perfectly in sync with each other. Everything from state insurance exchanges to Medicare payments to accountable care organizations, a whole bunch of things needed to all line up and sync up perfectly. Who knows if it ever could have worked or not, but the thing about a Swiss watch how do you break it? You don't need to smash it with a hammer. All you need to do is take out one of the gears. And that's what has now happened. State insurance exchanges have effectively been removed from the system. The new administration didn't need to destroy the Affordable Care Act with a hammer. All you need to do is take out one piece and it will fall apart by itself. And I think that's where we are. And I don't, my, the only reason I bring this up is because what the pictures are showing us, don't get sick because you're on your own. So, that is the final picture that we ended up drawing, reassessing where we are right now. Now, is that available for people? Are you still fine-tuning We're it? still fine-tuning it. I have promised Dr. Tony that he will have my final drawings in the next two weeks. 
So whenever this airs, hopefully it'll be available and I'll let you know. I remember at the time uh, you you were putting the finishing touches on it then. And then, uh, boy, you were on television here and television there. <laughs> oh, my, was it was like... crazy. We drew these pictures. And of all places, I got invited. This is this is really amazing. I got invited by Fox News, who who called me up at home here in my office in San Francisco. Tony and I had taken our pictures uploaded them online to SlideShare, which is now a part of LinkedIn, now part of Microsoft. This is 10 years ago. It was it was just a figment of what it is now. Our pictures got millions of views, and I literally got a call from Fox News. And the producer said, you know, Dan, based on your pictures, you're clearly one of America's leading thinkers on healthcare reform. Would you be willing to come on air and share with our viewers how the healthcare system works using your pictures? And I said, I would be absolutely delighted. Of course. So they flew me out to New York. You're right, Martha. This was I, it's, it's some years ago. This is just hanging in the back of my yeah. head here. And, and What's that Dan then, doing on there? He's not a healthcare expert. Well, but this you is can the draw. Point. <laughs> Who and and then literally, I flew back home from New York, having been given seven and a half minutes of airtime on on Fox Business Channel. And two days later, I got a call at home in my office in San Francisco, and uh, the voice on the phone said. You know, is this the Dan Rome who was on Fox News drawing pictures of healthcare the other day? And I said, yes, who's this? And they said, this is the White House. This is the White House Office of Communications. We would love to invite you in to share with us, how did you do that? How do you take policy and draw it out? And what I walked them through is the same thing I was sharing with you a moment ago. There is a process. There's a system by which you can explain anything using these simple pictures. Now, clearly, this was... Uh, the previous administration, but I was able to go twice and, and show them how to use pictures to try to explain some things. And the point I think that I would wrap up with is this story is important to me, not just because it's fun and good for my resume, but more importantly, I think you asked it already, am I one of America's leading experts on health care reform? Not so much. But who is the person who's being invited on live national television and then to the White House? You nailed it simply the person who drew the picture. That's what we're talking about. You know, it's always such a pleasure to have you here. And I have a whole lot more questions, as you could see on these papers before you. But I have one final question. And I know you're married. Do you ever draw a picture when you're discussing things with your wife? And, you know, second question, you know, when you do, does she throw something at you? <laughs> do you ever I do didn't that? expect that question. Okay. Uh, yes, I am married. And yes, we have two daughters. And the simple answer to your question is yes, we have whiteboards all over the home. And I, my, myself, Isabel, my two daughters, all of us draw all the time. And we have a very particular way over the years that we've evolved to do it. Anything that is a kind of a checklist, like what do you need to do before you leave for school in the morning, that normally is a long litany of things you have to remember. All of us not just my family, but everybody. Our memories aren't as great as we love them backpack. to be. Backpack. It's like you draw the backpack. You draw it, and yet you draw it. You draw the checklist. There's lunch. Oh, so now I see it in my mind's eye. I better have lunch, and then I better have my shoes, and I better have my backpack. So you draw I mean, shoes. You just draw and it. the shoes you want. And 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 one other thing that's happened since I saw you was the publication of. Um, I want to say it was Joshua Four's book, Moonwalking with Einstein. Fabulous book about how human memory works. And he was the guy, this book's probably seven or eight years ago now, that really sort of brought home, reawakened for all of us this notion of the memory palace, that if you really want to remember a lot of things, 
what you do is you associate each thing you want to remember to some sort of visual object. You place that visual object in a in a palace in your mind, and you will never forget it. And so the same thing happens. We've created visual memory palaces throughout our house. My wife's in real estate. So when we're talking about how do real estate systems work, we draw them out. Who's the buyer? Who's the seller? What's the interest rate? What's the price? What, et cetera. Uh, when we're talking about um, reading a book, one of our daughters might be reading a, a, a book of history for school. Let's do a character map. Who are the main characters? Can we draw a little timeline? What happens? It's beautiful. You know, Dan, I just, uh, I'm so thrilled. Please don't wait so long to come back. Come back anytime. We'd love to have you. I'd be delighted. My guest today is Dan Rome. Information about the Napkin Academy is available on the web at napkinacademy.com. His latest book, Draw to Win, a crash course on how to lead, sell, and innovate with your visual mind. It's published by Portfolio, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, a new model for going after genetically driven diseases which affect a small number of patients. Find the scientists wherever they are and build small companies around them. Then Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft reviews progress in knowing the health status of our hearts. It's not unusual for biotech companies to work on a number of diseases all at the same time, but usually they do that work under a single company and in one or at most two different locations. BridgeBio has a different model. Neil Kumar is its CEO. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on, and uh, it's a great pleasure to speak with you. We have a slightly different model that allows us to go uniquely after some very small diseases. And so I guess the whole point of any model is to say, okay, what science do we find interesting? In this case, it's the science behind genetic disease. And then how do we actually go after it? And it can't be by building a normal biotech because a normal biotech has 20 to 25 people and labs and a whole bunch of fixed costs that they carry on. And that's too expensive to go after a patient population of a couple hundred patients, let's say, or a couple thousand patients. And so we have a model that effectively variableizes a lot of those fixed costs. We have a central platform. And then every time we find an interesting project, we start a new company. But that new company only has a few scientists that really understand that space within it. And they can draw from GNA functions or general generalized R&D functions from Bridge Biopharma and then give them back when they're done. So it tends to lead to much more capital efficiency, uh, which then in turn allows us to go after small things. And so we have Bridge Bio. That's the sort of the parent company, yeah, if you will. That's right. And every time you come up with something new, new company. That's right. New company. But Bridge Bio has like, okay, who needs pencils? Probably, probably it's a little bigger than that. <laughs> We're handing out pencils today, you know. But uh, but the science, of course, is at the core 
of each of these projects. Yeah. That's why a diff- different set of scientists have to be there. Give us some examples of the the genetically driven diseases you're working on. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we think about these diseases in three different categories, really. Uh, the first are the classic inherited diseases, like you hear about Tay-Sachs or sickle cell. Uh, we have a number of programs in these sorts of areas, TTR amyloidosis, Gorland syndrome. You may not have heard of each one of these diseases, no. but collectively <laughs> they affect about 25 million Americans. So those are what we think about as Mendelian disease. Then there's a series of what are called germline cancers. Those are also inherited diseases or pediatric cancers, which more people have heard of. We break them out separately because there's more of an awareness around pediatric cancer. Uh, And then there are what we call somatic cancers, which develop later in life. These can be any sort of cancer, a lot of what like Loxo, pharmaceuticals, and others are going after. These are cancers that arise where there's a very clear genetic driver. So what, what sort of binds all of these? programs together is that you can, from mutation, really precisely understand what's driving the disease. So it's not like heart failure or diabetes where there are a lot of different things going on. There's the genetics, there's your diet, there's, you know, all sorts of different exacerbating factors. These are very clearly quantitatively driven by the mutation, and that's what we focus on. I guess one of my questions is, do you have them housed in different places? I mean, everybody has a different color name tag. How do you manage this? You only have a couple of scientists here and a couple of scientists there. Yeah, so we we think uh, a lot about, okay, who are the people that really need to be part of the company? And it's usually the people that have one of two phenotypes. One is that they really deeply understand the biology. And typically those people are coming from an academic lab that have been looking at disease X for 20 years, 30 years sometimes. And so we go to where those people are. So we have subsidiaries in Memphis, in Montreal, in Paris, in San Francisco, of course, in Boston. So it's where the science and is. It's where, it's, where those, it's where the science and where the experts are. And we try to set up around them. And then the second type of person that's really important to us are people that understand the clinical manifestations of the disease and can help with development. And so in many cases, we'll locate around them, especially if it's a later stage program. So, yeah, I mean, we're basically geographically unconstrained, um, and but but we've done a lot in our backyard in San Francisco just because, you know, we're there. <laughs> and it's a pretty large uh, bio cluster. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's another interesting note. I expected when I read your bio to find a life scientist, a lifetime yeah. science executive. All your degrees are in chemical engineering. <laughs> What's up with that? What's you're not supposed that? to be working yeah. <laughs> in, in these fields. What's going on? Well, you're an engineer, so you, so you know this. I'm the, not the, supposed the, to be doing yeah, this yeah, either. Right. All right, all <laughs> so right. there you go. <laughs> I, I think that uh, – so I, I actually entered chemical engineering at a very interesting period of time because the traditional – and maybe some of my professors would, would kill me for saying this, but I, my, my perception was the traditional chemical engineering disciplines were dying, like oil – and gas, plastics, where all of us used to go, separations, things like that. There wasn't, there's not a ton of research going on there. A lot of the really important problems had already been solved. So when I entered chemical engineering, a lot of new research was going on in the biotechnology industry. In fact, a lot of the early folks associated with Genzyme and Genentech and, you know, the whole thing of manufacturing these new types of modalities, they were chemical engineers. And a lot of the faculty at Stanford and MIT where I trained were actually in biotech and in some of those early days. So I did all my research at the corner of biology and chemical engineering, and my PhD uh, was in cancer signaling. So so it's kind of, yeah, chemical engineering has changed. Does life science know about that? They might take you 
two degree away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a long yeah, walk yeah, between exactly. the engineering building and the life science building. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I mean, I think there's a discipline now called biological engineering that didn't exist when I was in school, but it really is. Um, yeah, it's at the corner. I mean, it's it's at the corner of a lot of engineering disciplines in biology, but certainly there's some chemical engineering and biology intersection there. That's I mean, we I we so many times we forget that we've got you know okay all this organic matter, and we we look at our brain, and then we have all the these electrical signals, and we have we have yeah. chemistry in there, and it's like all of these things are working together, and yeah. we had them broken up into separate silos. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you say that because I mean, for me, engineering is sort of like this uh, this way of simplifying very complex problems, and there's no more complex a problem than a biology, and then putting some quantitative real rules around it. And so, you know, if you think about a cell, for instance, you think about it sitting in an extracellular, you know, milieu, it's interrogating all of that information, then there are all these signals going through the cell, and then it decides to do something like proliferate or migrate or do something like that. And you ask yourself, okay, so a biologist or a reductionary scientist would look to build up a set of data and understand how all of those steps happen. That's really hard. And and so an engineer kind of abstracts and says a little bit like, okay, I'm gonna, like there's a there's a cue, there's a signal, there's a response. This is kind of what you know Doug Laufenberg at MIT has been talking about. And you put that all together, and how do I model it? And how do I start to get some predictive understanding of how this might change if a drug intervened, or you know if I intervened at the at the output level? And so that I think engineering is kind of uniquely suited to answer some of these questions. Not, not all of them, but some of them. You should work at NASA. That's where the scientists meet the engineers. and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, They don't I, always get along so much. I think it's really interesting because at the end of the day, all of these challenges are going to be solved by humans. And they have to be working in all different kinds of ways and have all different kinds of perspectives. So that was, that was the first thing that attracted me to say, hey, we got to talk to these bridge bio people and see how are they doing it? Is it working, not working? Have you gotten to the point where any one of these uh, efforts have been sold off or reached, you know, got registered? Or are you all are you pretty much earlier mid-stage on all of them? Yeah, so I think uh, we have a, a two programs now in, uh, in or entering phase three clinical trials that we started preclinically with. So that's really exciting. Now to you're us. getting, yeah. now you're seeing daylight. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we think about things in terms of, you know, our ultimate goal is to get products approved. Uh, we, we, we don't have any products approved yet, uh, but we start quite early. And so I'm hopeful that over the course of the next decade, uh, we'll get a few products approved that can make a, a big difference in patients' lives. But, uh, but what it's, happens if they get approved? What happens to that little company? Then they, you know, I, I think in the case where we can, we would like to commercialize those products. So, you, you know, this is very different again than some of the broad diseases that big pharma goes after. There may only require a 15 to 20, you know, what we call medical science liaison sales force to get out there and commercialize these products. So, um, you know, we're hopeful that we're creating an integrated biotechnology company here that can, uh, that can distribute the product to patients. You're going all the way. We're trying. Yeah. Don't, we don't usually hear that answer, Neil. I'm very, very interested here. Thank you for coming in. I hope you come back and we'll see us again. Thank you so much. Thanks for the time. Neil Kumar is the CEO of BridgeBio. More information is available at BridgeBio.com. That's Bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E, BridgeBio.com. 
Today, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the health status of our hearts. We're now able to know more than ever before. I thought we would start with a startup that I know Daniel has advised in the past. It's called Arteris. Well, Arteris is an interesting convergence company coming out of Stanford, where it was founded by a radiologist and a Stanford MBA and and a couple other really bright folks to now look at this explosion of MRI data and MRI magnetic resonance imaging. doesn't just look at the brain, but can look at many parts of our body, including the heart. And it's becoming dynamic. You don't just look at a slices of the heart and determine its shape. We can see it now in real time. FMRI. FMR, functional MRI. And now the question was, could you take that those massive data sets and change it with every microsecond and start to understand, in some cases, the function of the heart? And one important element for all of our hearts is what's called ejection fraction. How much is our big left ventricle, the big biggest chamber of our heart, squeezing? How much blood comes out of it with every heartbeat? And for most of us who are pretty healthy, it's, let's say, 50 to 60% every squeeze. Now, how do we measure that? We can do an fMRI, actually see that your dynamic heart squeezing. But traditionally, to get your ejection fraction would require a radiologist or a cardiologist to literally go in there and measure with digital calipers today how much distance has changed. And from that, calculate your ejection fraction. That took several minutes. They could bill for that type of analysis. But That's public, a good business. Sure. Uh, but uh, Artis was the first to pioneered this approach to do that with AI assistance. And uh, late in 2017, they're basically the first company that I'm aware of to get FDA clearance for an AI-assisted imaging system. So now that you don't require a radiologist to do that, in this case, ejection fraction measurement, but that can be done almost instantaneously. So while they're taking it... You should know at the end of the picture, if you will, this is what the answer is. Patient rolls out of fMRI, and we have not just potentially indications about ejection fraction, but learning about the valves and other flowing parts uh, of the body it could be a uh, what we call an aneurysm that could be in the aorta or around the kidneys. Any other part of vasculature can now be analyzed with fMRI, and that with the lens of artificial intelligence assistance help us really quantify that and bring that information diagnostically to the clinician almost immediately. Uh, I would say that you could actually look at how your heart works. Right. I've had my own fMRI of the heart done. I came out of the machine, and 10 minutes later, I'm looking at my heart on the screen. I can look at all those numbers, not just my ejection fraction, but what percentile am I of others my age and sex and height, right? Um, Similarly, we've seen... FMRI be done, uh, or MRI in general, of the brain. I had my brain done by MRI, and the machine learning actually color-coded the different components, and I can look at what percentile size is my thalamus or hypothalamus. And it might be nice to compare that to others, but if I'm at a certain percentile, it might mean I'm at risk of a dementia, and I might want to do something differently about it. So the power of these new AI-assisted diagnostic platforms is not to replace the radiologist, but to help us glean the information more quickly and to connect the dots between millions and thousands of scans to improve these systems and the ability to use them. It's one thing to look at what does the general population look like and how do I compare to it. It's a whole other thing to say, gee, if I had one of these every year, you could see if my heart was failing. Well, one of the areas that's been debatable is looking at... uh, repeated scans of the heart for calcium, what's called calcium scoring. Another approval uh, of an AI 
FDA-approved AI screening was by Zebra, Medi- Zebra Medical, an Israeli startup in July of 2018, that can do coronary calcium scoring uh, as improved by artificial intelligence. I myself had my uh, heart scanned and brain and beyond at Human Longevity Incorporated about a year ago. I had one little pixel on my coronary calcium score. The question would be, what does that mean for me? How does that correlate to my cholesterol They found level. a little calcium deposit. One little spot. Now, does that mean I should start on a statin? Um, what would my cardiologist do with that information? Uh, what Zebra and others are doing is starting to do imaging of thousands of these scores, then can connect that to what happened to that patient in the future or others like them in the past so that we can do better interpretation of what does this score mean. And Hopefully for me, it means nothing, but it might mean something. I'm actually going to go take that data and repeat my cholesterol levels, which have been okay, and hopefully synthesize that information to do a personalized uh, therapeutic or prevention approach. Daniel's path. And so if this year you come back, you got one little one or it again, or it disappeared, oh, you'd be very happy about that. Right. And there's a question, how much over... How much do we screen, right? Do you give everybody a full body MRI every year? Absolutely not. Uh, certain things you don't even want to pick up on these exams. There might be a small little lesion in a kidney that is 99% benign, meaning totally safe, but you might see it and your clinical team say, we have to go biopsy it just to be sure. And that can lead to complications. So there's a lot of challenges in sensitivity, specificity, that with machine learning, AI now, hopefully more and more individuals going through these platforms will keep honing the system so that we can improve sensitivity, specificity, and not lead to false positives or negatives, and also not lead to an error where we're getting in a scanner every six months. And there's such a fine line between knowledge is power and knowledge is anxiety. (laughs) We have to kind of be careful because these are all new tools. It's a great era if you're a hypochondriac, but it's also (laughs) one where if you are a hypochondriac or just someone concerned about your health, you can get a pretty deep picture of your health and wellness or your risk platform. So you can do something about it, not just worry or be assured. We've talked in prior episodes about the watch that can look at your EKG, that your heart rate's actually fine. You're not having a heart attack. So it can reassure some individuals. Uh, It can also give us a new lens to pick up things early or when you have a real problem to manage it in the most individualized, uh, proactive way. Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Moira. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2018 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.